0: Um, so this talk comes in really in two parts, and the first is uh, to tell the truth, um, and, and then asking people to act as if the truth is real. Um, and the, uh, the second part is, is, is more sort of hopeful, what to do about it. So you may or may not understand that there's a, a fairly decent crisis in terms of the way that we find science and politics interacting in the way that we um, make changes to uh, the world around us and the way that we manage our societies. And it's important for us to always uh, make sure that people understand that, that grief is a perfectly acceptable part of what we're doing with Extinction Rebellion and um, I think it's an important difference uh, between us and a lot of other movements and campaigns. Um, grief is sort of multi-layered affair and uh, some of you look quite young so hopefully maybe you don't know as much about it as I do um, but it's, it's, it's important for us to make sure that we understand that what, when we talk about the reality of the situation that we're in as a species it's, it's, quite, it's quite difficult to deal with and so we ask people to be mindful of their own journey through acceptance and and the realisation of what it means and also to be kind to one another and to find ways to be open and supportive to people because different people have very different experiences and ways of dealing with grief. So the first part, the ecological crisis, climate collapse um, and beyond. When we set out on our mission to start a rebellion, we talked about shifting the Overton window. Does anyone know? Do you know what the Overton window is? No, OK, so the Overton window is really the frame within which you find like, the acceptable public conversation. And that might be within politics, but certainly for us it's meant increasing the use of the term extinction has, has certainly moved the window of what I think is acceptable in terms of the language that we use when we talk about our current situation. Um, The example that you might use that illustrates what it is is that you would have said before Trump got elected that no president of the United States could ban Muslims or cage children and separate them from their children. And by doing those things and enacting those things and and getting away with them, the, the window of what is possible and possibly what's acceptable has kind of shifted in the public imagination. And this window moves around all the time depending on what's going on in the world. And we recognised that we needed to move that uh, on the possibility of human extinction and the rate of the extinction crisis that we're living through. And we also recognised that we needed to move the Overton window in terms of what's a, what makes a realistic and um, appropriate response to this. Because certainly within my lifetime, I haven't seen lots of protesters risk jail. I haven't seen lots of protesters on hunger strike. I haven't seen people sort of Taking these kinds of levels of sacrificial action, which we've started to advocate for um, in terms of giving up something per, quite personal uh, in order to to make to make yourself heard so in science, we um, talk about the precautionary principle the precautionary principle is a very well known concept it 's embedded in um, in lots and lots of uh, policy in Europe and basically means that you don't have to know for absolute sure that something is going to be catastrophic in order to act to mitigate it. So we're not using the precautionary principle in a meaningful way uh, at the moment with regards to climate change and policy writing and also international collaboration. Um, And a lot of people are asking for certainty of the science, but the fact is if you want to know for sure whether the boat's gonna hit the rocks before you take action, then of course it's going to crash before you do anything about it. So the you know the rules the rules don't necessarily apply when you understand that you're headed for a huge catastrophe. Um, and within science, you find that because it's peer reviewed and it goes through lots of processes to be to make sure that it is rigorously checked by the community by the academic community, you'll get a very different conversation with a scientist down the pub about their concerns about climate change to what you would hear in a peer-reviewed paper that they would write much more carefully and then further again when you go to the IPCC which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change their uh, information that they put out is even more conservative again partly because they take it from a hugely wide range of data, of everything that they can find in that area which means often their reports take several years to come out as well, which means that the information can already be three years old before we hear how alarming it is. Um, And the latest data that people have discovered in the recent months have certainly not been through and come through an IPCC report. So you're not hearing the cutting edge information and you're also getting a sort of relatively conservative uh, output. The other thing that it's important to know about the IPCC report in that we get most of our information on on climate from from that internationally is that uh, it goes also through panels of economists and politicians so the outcome of those reports is not purely scientific but it's also uh, highly politicized now the actual data that you find uh, on climate change is often, uh, it's been often described that the pessimists are always the closest to the truth. So when you take a reading and you check back against the projection from a few years back, you usually find that the worst case scenario is what we have playing out. And this is um, a slightly old graph now, but it effectively shows you just the um, projected uh, loss of sea ice in the Arctic, which you can see as a model runs over towards looking like we probably have ice there until about 2100. And that was that was a model that was broadly believed until relatively recently. And the red uh, line shows you the observations. So we know that the outcome of uh, climate breakdown won't be played out in a linear fashion. We're going to experience a non-linear uh, change to our global environment. And it's also, I think, reasonable to say that whilst we might have called certain types of scientists alarmists for saying the Arctic is going to go very, very much faster than the IPCC ever predicted, um, those, those people are looking closer and closer to the truth every year. And there are some quite credible climate scientists that think we could lose the Arctic next year completely. Um, this is um, Professor Sean Huber. Um, I would really recommend that you look him up if you're interested in the science. He's a physicist um, who started, um, I think founded the Potsdam Institute, he's an extremely credible voice in this um, area, internationally advises Angela Merkel and the Pope uh, on climate issues. And he wrote a foreword for a, a paper last year uh, called What Lies Beneath and it was about the understatement of the risk. So. What he framed in the opening of that paper which I think was fundamentally important for us to understand where we are with this situation was that we're not using a risk assessment approach really. Uh, If you spoke to a risk assessment professional and said we have a 20 percent chance at the moment of a total catastrophe or we have a 50 percent chance of a massive catastrophe they would tell you that's absurd odds, nobody would insure anything with anywhere near those odds of going wrong. Um, And because science uses statistical analysis just in the most basic way, you could also say that we have a 0% risk of uh, human extinction simply because it's never happened before. So we don't have any data on that. It's important to know as well that if there's something that we can't model well, the IPCC don't include it in their reports. So there are no feedback loops in their reports, which I'm gonna go on and explain to you now. So there's probably, uh, there there are many, many feedback loops and um, a variety of tipping points that scientists have identified within the uh, climate change sort of system. And uh, I won't go into all of them now, but I'll just talk about some top-line ones. And really, the situation is so far advanced that it's not, I don't think it's necessary to explain everything in great detail because you only need to know a few to know that we're really in fucking trouble, basically. So one of the most simple and easy to explain feedback mechanisms that's in the system is the albedo effect. And the albedo effect is when the sun hits the planet and it reflects off the white ice, and the majority of the heat and the energy is reflected back into space. And that happens wherever there is a white surface, and that prevents the Earth's atmosphere from absorbing a huge amount of, uh, of energy and heat. So obviously, as the ice melts, and the permafrost thaws, we lose white surface and you gain dark surface, you gain dark water and it's basic physics. White reflects it and the dark surface absorbs it. So for all the ice we lose, we gain momentum in heating and that's why it's called a positive feedback loop because it makes itself worse and worse and worse. Um, it's been estimated that once you lose the Arctic sea ice you'll lose it in say September around the hottest time of the year and so there's this unprecedented warming going on in the Arctic and, and what it means is that the ice is shrinking faster and faster. The glaciers are melting much more quickly than we, than we could have ever expected. Um, once you lose the ice in say September of one year it will return but it's uh, guessed by the scientists that, that once you've lost it one summer you've probably got about a decade where it will return Smaller, and then it will disappear again in the summer, and eventually you've you've lost it after about ten years completely. And without the polar regions being the coldest points on the planet, we lose the stability of all of our weather systems, which are pretty much controlled by the fact that there is hot air around the middle and cold air at the top, and everything is kept fairly well in line. So that's why, whilst we've seen this kind of disruption of the patterns with the beast from the from the east, and you know the uh, the summer heat waves and stuff, so. Those, those patterns are getting disrupted, and that's why we get heat waves and polar vortex, which bring monsoon style rains and things like that. That's a very basic explanation of, of that. I'm, I'm not the best to explain it in detail, but you get the picture. Um, and over the, the climate uh, connections in Yale, say that this is more like this means a climate change, you must understand it as more like a vicious circle. So at certain temperatures, we expect other tipping points and feedbacks. So, one feedback is that the Amazon will die back or burn down, or a bit of both. So regardless of whether anyone chops it down, um, that is likely to happen somewhere between 2 and 3 degrees of global average warming. And that's significant because it turns a carbon sink into a carbon producer and it never will flip back the other way. And when you talk about a tipping point in science, the most basic way to describe it is like tipping over a glass of water that... The more water goes from being in one state in the glass to being spilled everywhere, and it's in a quite a different state. You can't put it back how it was before, and that's what it means when you go for a tipping point in the climate system. It won't be something that we can sort of do something to engineer a reversal of those effects. Now last year, there was um, there were several breakthrough academic papers and scientific reports where lots of scientists came together and and said fairly unprecedented things. Schoen Huber was one of them. Um, the other paper that came out was this PNAS paper, which gave us all those headlines. You might remember about Hothouse Earth, uh, and about how the Earth could tip into a hot state that we couldn't get it out of. And um, Johan Rockstrom has said uh, 50 years ago, this would be dismissed as alarmist, But now scientists have really become very worried. Um, so this is also um, a diagram that will just show you where you've got. Um, other tipping point, sort of temperatures that push systems into a hothouse state. So there are issues around ocean currents, there's issues around sea ice, permafrost we expect to um, emit very large amounts of methane. Nobody seems to have uh, a super accurate data on this, but effectively frozen rock contains methane gas. uh, That is estimated to be around 20 times as strong a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide, so methane is not our friend. Um, It's actually more potent when it's released around the poles. So that's terrible news, because that's where we expect to see some of that come out. So there are lots and lots of uh, problems that that we face. And currently, global average temperatures are around 1.1 to 1.2 degrees above the pre-industrial average. Um, They they have been rising at about 0.17 degrees per decade, but rises, as I said, won't be uh, linear as they play out. Um, The graph there shows you the temperature um, increase. And here it's worth noting that the University of Washington um, used the warming estimates from the UN last year, and they said that we've got at the moment a 1% chance of hitting uh, 1.5 degrees of total average warming and that we've only got a 5% chance that we'll stay below 2 degrees C and the likely medium range by the end of this century is somewhere around 3.2 although of course it's very difficult to predict. Shortly after we put this presentation together there were some New reports that came that said we could even reach 1.5 within five years, and that's what we were warned last year by the IPCC would be the optimum place to curb warming. Um, We we will see sea level rise, and the World Bank has predicted that by 2050, 140 million people are going to be displaced. Uh, And um, this isn't just... um, something that's going to scale up the migration and refugee crisis that we see at the moment. But we've got an internal migration problem as well. Um, and, that's, and that's really um, something that I think very few people are talking about. And the list of places here, you probably all know people that live in one of them, Aberdeen, Newcastle, Portsmouth, Belfast, Cardiff, Southampton, Bristol, Brighton, Middlesbrough, Plymouth, Lincolnshire. All of these places are going to be affected and people will lose their homes. Um, It's also interesting to know that if you want to know the truth about uh, the reality of climate change, you can think about looking to the insurance industries who are already openly having conversations about when they're going to stop insuring basement apartments in coastal cities like London and Mumbai and New York. And they're they're quite open about about those uh, conversations. So other ecological pressures that we're facing. We're, we're trying not to be solely a climate change movement, uh, although we do can sometimes get called that. Um, it's important to us that we also recognise the, the breadth of the ecological crisis that we're in. Um, so ocean acidification, you might not know that the ocean is changing pH because of carbon emissions. The majority of carbon that we've ever emitted has gone straight into the sea. Uh, it soaks it in and it changes the acidity level. So the oceans changing their pH are very significant because we don't have any idea how we could possibly reverse that and it damages the conditions for which some of the creatures at the very base of the food chain form their shells. So very tiny things, anything that makes a shell basically, but some of them are very small. So we're really undermining the entire uh, food chain in the sea aside from the plastics which obviously are horrendous but they seem to have gotten a great deal of attention because you can really see them. Um, we also have air pollution which is the World Health Organization says is, is the biggest threat to human life apart from uh, climate change, climate collapse. Um, We're polluting our fresh water supplies very rapidly. We've got water depletion issues. Those those issues are going to get worse whilst we have more desertification, more flooding. Um, And soil erosion and soil infertility is is also uh, something that we don't have enough conversations about. Uh, Michael Gove's own statistic is that we could be 30 to 40 harvests away from a total loss of fertility in British soil. Um, we only grow quite a small percentage of our own food in this country, um, but what we do grow um, may may not be, may, may not be able to to even grow in a few year, in a few decades' time and then you have deforestation and habitat loss, so apart from the fact that we 're destroying the world 's carbon sinks and and lungs of the earth, which often the Amazon gets called the lungs of the earth, I actually think the ocean is the lungs of the earth. Um, but whilst we destroy all of these habitats, we destroy uh, the conditions for natural life at the same time as destroying our own chances of life. Um, we expect also, just to note on the food production topic, that uh, when if we have another, th- say, three years' worth of summer heatwaves like the ones that we just experienced and the UK lost... huge amount of its crops some farmers this year last year lost about 50 percent of their crops because of the heat wave so if we have another couple of years of those conditions then we will burn through our stocks like in reserve of grain which we hold as a sort of safety net for society so we usually hold i think it's somewhere 40 to 60 percent of reserve for a year's supply so that there's always extra food but if you lose that many crops for several years in a row, then you'll have no backup. And then we can anticipate a global food crisis that will affect people here in this country and around Europe. So again, it's not just the people uh, in other countries with different color skin that are going to get the brunt of this. Like, quickly, we could feel it here much faster than anybody's really uh, recognizing. Um, So there's been five major extinctions in the past we can find in the geological record. The Permian-Triassic extinction uh, shows that there were conditions there where runaway climate change caused uh, massive methane release and uh, wiped out 97% of life on the face of the planet. And most of these uh, events do seem to have wiped out the majority of all of life in all forms, all over the planet. Um, And we are in an extinction event at the moment and some people say adding carbon to the atmosphere faster and experiencing faster warming than we can find in any of the previous extinction events on record. The scientists um, started to use this term biological annihilation um, a few years ago Wildlife is dying out because of habitat destruction, overhunting, and toxic pollution, invasion by alien species, and climate change. Um, the loss of all of the insects is, is anticipated, I think, by most people to be largely to do with combination of changes in temperatures and uh, massive use of, of chemicals in the in the natural world. Um, but the ultimate cause you might see systemically of all of these things is overconsumption. Uh, and that's particularly by the rich, uh, and that's all of us. Um, Species endangered uh, include one in four mammals, one in eight birds, one third of all amphibians and 70% of the world's assessed plants. And uh, a study of British mammals last year estimated that one in five could be extinct within a decade. And the numbers on the puffins there show you something real in terms of 33,000 puffins counted in 2000, which have now just 570 individuals. Um, There was another paper that came, uh, which was a scientific reviewed paper that recognized the possibility of human extinction. And it's interesting when uh, you can find these things emerging in the scientific community in places where people really need to be able to back that up. And um, it's estimated that the amount of carbon that we've put into the atmosphere already presents a 1 in 20 chance that we could have already altered the atmosphere enough to create a runaway warming event. Uh, and that's been described by the people in this paper as a 1 in 20 chance that the plane that you get on is going to crash. And people don't get on planes that have those odds of crashing, but we are in effect putting our children and our grandchildren on that plane. Um, Another terrifying paper that came out last year, um, Professor Jen Bendel, it's called Deep Adaptation. I think most academic papers are downloaded an average of three times. um, And this has been downloaded over 100,000 times, I think, now. All over the world, people are reading this paper. um, Because he really gathered what we've done with this talk in a similar way, sort of gathered a lot of data from different places and said, if you put all of this together, like there's no way that we can mitigate anything we've done it like we've just totally missed the opportunity to do that we've wasted all of the time that we knew for the last 30 years that we needed to address it and now calling for I suppose a rigorous uh, conversation about adaptation and what that means because we know that we need to adapt to the effects of climate change now and his sort of hierarchy, if you like, of what he expects to play out is that societal collapse is inevitable and it could happen quite soon. Immense catastrophe is very likely, so there's very, very large loss of human life and human extinction is possible. Um, Other life extinction already in process on a very large scale. Um, And that there's a possible mechanism that could lead to social collapse in about three years' time, so adaptation is very urgently needed. And that's, again, He's if you look him up, you'll hear him talk a lot about food security and the fact that societies just basically break down if people can't get fed. Uh, and we don't really, I think, have any understanding of what that might be like in this kind of country. I don't think I've got any, any concept, really, of what the reality is to live in a society that's falling apart because people are, people are struggling to get enough food into their Homes to feed their families. And so um, the warning signs of fascism, you might recognize some of those um, as things that you understand are present in our daily lives and in sort of emerging politics around the world. Um, It's important to know that fear and destructiveness are usually uh, the main sources of uh, fascism and we think it's important to recognise that when people face uh, grave risk and scarcity and somebody comes with a simple political solution which quite often blames somebody that's very easy to point at and single out, that those things we've sort of felt um, are around us right now and that the conditions that we anticipate climate change and collapse to bring will present uh, an opportunity for, for this kind of um, for fascism to hijack democracy again, as it has over and over again over the years. Um, and Douglas Rushkoff, who's a professor, is very interesting. Um, if you haven't heard of him, look him up. He publishes his writing on Medium. Um, he wrote this blog piece last year which was kind of a, a whistleblowing piece saying that he'd been invited to speak at a public event um, with some very uh, influential hedge fund managers and um, when he showed up, it wasn't a public event at all, it was just a group of people sat around a table that wanted to ask him some very in-depth questions about technology and the future. And um, they uh, asked him basically, um, you know, what should we invest in Bitcoin, Ethereum, you know, some fairly sort of innocuous questions about technology in the future. But it went on to, uh, ask to really be focused on what they would do in the coming climate crisis. So uh, which region will be less impacted by the crisis, New Zealand or Alaska? And finally, the CEO of a brokerage house explaining... he'd nearly completed building his own underground bunker system and asked how do I maintain authority over my security forces after the event. So these people are well aware that collapse is ahead and what they don't know is how they get people to manage their security for them when money is worthless and lots of people don't have enough food to eat. Um, I think if you read that piece you'll read to the end and hear Douglas write that, you know, at least ordinary people don't have to think about shit like this because we know that we don't we we know that we'd rather do a different route, thank you very much, which is to actually try and fix the problem and, and work together and not isolate ourselves in biospheres and bunkers and, you know, rely on technology that uh, that doesn't exist. Um, So, government policy, in the UK we've had the most appalling uh, couple of decades or or maybe the last three decades. Um, Tony Juniper says it's the worst period for environmental policy right now that we've had in 30 years, but it's been pretty bad pretty consistently. Um, This uh, Conservative government have scrapped onshore wind support, they've scrapped solar subsidies, they've um, scrapped the Green Homes Scheme. They've sold off the Green Investment Bank. Uh, They've given less incentive to buy sustainable and green cars. They've ditched green tax targets. And they've refused tidal power projects at the same time as they have proposed and managed to vote through an expansion of Heathrow Airport, which uh, will have the carbon emissions equivalent of Cyprus if it gets uh, set up and running. and they've subsidised fracking and forced it on local communities who, who absolutely didn't want it and who've been engaged in sort of struggle on the ground, which you may know about for many years now. Um, so it, it, the government are are just not doing anything meaningful about this. And I, and I recently met some people who work with NGOs and they explained some stuff to me about the context of the political situation as they see it and... Um, and i have to say that the the political situation having been given a more a more clear view in there it was like someone pulled back the curtain and there was nothing there and i thought it was going to be something disappointing but i didn't think it would be so empty uh and so i'm i'm personally now more concerned about the politicians than i am about the physics and and i and i read science and and cry fairly often so So when you face the lack of any meaningful action that we've experienced and that's brought us to this position, um, the first IPCC report was in 1990. That's a long time ago. The UN said if we went above one degree of average warming, then we could face a societal collapse. Of course, we've already breached that point And we've not quite seen society collapse yet. But that's what they predicted. Uh, CO2 levels are 60% higher than they were in 1990. Now, so that's uh, we've not done uh, anywhere near what they recommended us to do. Um, they're still going up. Methane emissions are going up. You might also know methane is um, emitted every time you like frack for gas or every time you mine for anything in the ground. So um, at the point of fossil fuel extraction, we inevitably produce a really potent greenhouse gas before we even burn any of the fuels. Um, I also uh, think that it's important to keep reiterating that at some point the problems will run away from us. So Professor Kevin Anderson, who's um, a climate scientist who's fairly well acclaimed within his sector for being somebody who won't get on planes because he's not uh, because he doesn't want to be a hypocrite um, which lots of people who are invested in trying to fight climate change fly around the world constantly trying to do that job Um, but he's uh, very outspoken I'd recommend you look him up as well if you're interested to find more out he says we would rather question physics than our economic model there have been a litany of technocratic frauds we haven't tried real mitigation and long-term targets undermine real mitigation today. Um, Scientists are reluctant to admit how challenging their Paris agreements actually are. Scientists have been self-censoring. And um, biomass energy and carbon capture and storage, policymakers are relying on negative emissions technologies that don't exist. So you may or may not know that the Paris Climate Agreement has been written and signed based on a certain amount of carbon capture and storage technology uh, which countries can implement to effectively remove carbon from the atmosphere that we've put there Um, and actually that technology until recently basically didn't really exist it didn't work properly it does work now but it's not scaled and I don't think it is scalable it was estimated that the technology that's been developed needs to be scaled by about two million times starting right now to have a meaningful impact in helping us meet the targets that we need to meet. So writing policy based on um, something that you might be able to invent in the future doesn't feel to me like um, work that I want my politicians to be doing. And this is Dr Kate Marvel from NASA's Goddard Institute, and she um, says we need courage, not hope. Uh, To be a climate scientist is to be an active participant in a slow-motion horror story. As a scientist, I'm often asked to talk about hope, and particularly in the political climate. Audiences want to be told that everything is going to be all right in the end. And climate change is bleak, the organisers always say. Tell us a happy story. Please give us hope. But the problem is, I don't have any. So um, I said at the beginning, and I'll um, just reiterate (laughs) that it's okay that this is really sad and really difficult to take in. Um, And I've spoken to lots of people um, at our lectures who really um, come and say that they're grateful for having somewhere where they can say, talk about this stuff, because a lot of people's family and friends aren't on the same page as them. and uh, yeah and we do regularly have uh, meetings where people get upset and I cried a lot when I met the NGOs last week Um, and that's okay actually and I've I've never felt more okay with being able to get upset in public places as I do now that I'm doing this work and um, and I feel hugely supported by the people that I'm working with and who understand the sort of scale of the situation that we're in and so we just ask everybody to support each other if you've got friends in the room um, or even if you haven't to talk about stuff afterwards and make sure that you keep in touch with each other um, and really once you understand what this all means um, the question for us is how does it affect the way that you want to live your life and what does it mean to uh, make an appropriate response to the situation that we've been put in by uh, the systemic failure of our society and our politicians to do anything.